morning, everybody, not forgetting those online. Today's passage is from Mark 10, verses 32 to 45, where Jesus predicts his death a third time and also replies to a request from James and John. Church Bibles, it's page 1015. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. When James, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it, all, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nigel and others, thank you very much for your welcome. Um, Miriam and I are just delighted <clears throat> to be here. As well as being vicars, Nigel and I have one other thing in common. We both have a model railway. So we are part of that weird breed of clergy <clears throat> who seem to love railway trains. And it's good to see some of you who I kind of recognize from the time on Zoom when we did Revelation. The teacher in me is tempted to ask you a few questions to see how much you've remembered. But don't worry, I'm not going to do that. Now, some years ago, the following advertisement appeared in the church press, and it was for an organist. Quotes, wanted to play small organ in small church to small congregation and even smaller choir. Salary similar, of course. Now, it was the kind of advertisement that James and John, the sons of Zebedee and disciples of Jesus, would not have given a second glance. Because if they'd been would-be organists, they would have been scanning the papers for something like this. Quotes, wanted 
up-and-coming organist for large and prestigious church with well-known choir, broadcasting opportunities, excellent salary, prospects, and pension. Yes, I'm afraid that is where James and John would be looking, because it seems that they had some pretty firm ideas about their future. So firm, in fact, that they come to Jesus to talk about it. And in reply, Jesus not only rebukes them, he also sets out a way of life, a mindset, in total contradiction to the usual outlook of the world. And it's a mindset or attitude that every serious Christian needs to examine, to search our hearts about, and hopefully prayerfully to adopt. So let's see what happened as we dive into our gospel reading from Mark chapter 10. Jesus has actually been talking about his future, and in particular how that future will face him with rejection and shame, and that's what makes what follows even more inappropriate. Because, as we heard, along come James and John with a request and it's a request that shows that they had totally failed to understand what Jesus had just said. They addressed Jesus as teacher, so they saw themselves as pupils, and they'd been in his school, so to speak, for nearly three years. But it doesn't seem that they'd learnt very much. And just in passing, I think that's rather sobering, don't you? You and I, we can attend church regularly over many years even. We can hear Jesus' stirring words and sing to him as my lighthouse. And yet it's possible for the whole thing to leave us basically unchanged and unmoved. Pray God that you and I are never as spiritually deaf or blind as these two professing followers of Jesus were at this stage. Anyway, along come the two brothers with their petition. Verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Do you know, I think that could go down in the Guinness Book of Records as the worst prayer ever prayed. Because it's so self-centered, isn't it? And as such, it's really the opposite of what true prayer should be. Because real prayer is not trying to bend God's will to fit in with ours, to fit with our progress and our ambitions. No, real prayer is seeking to bend our will to fit with the Lord's. Your will be done, Jesus taught us to pray. But having said that, please don't misunderstand this. It is perfectly good and right to pray for ourselves as well for others. I do hope you're not one of these people who say, well, I pray for others, Vicar, but I never pray for myself. We must pray for ourselves because we are frail and flawed and without God's help, we shall stumble. So yes, we must pray for ourselves as well for others, but this incident is all about how and what we pray for ourselves. Let's see what James and John, in effect, did pray for themselves. Verse 37, let one of us, they said, sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, these two men were not stupid. 
from a worldly viewpoint. They sensed that events were moving to a climax as they all journeyed to Jerusalem. Surely it's in Jerusalem they were thinking that the balloon will go up, that Jesus will finally establish his kingdom. And look, they thought, there are 12 of us here, plus loads of hangers-on, so there's going to be quite a scramble for cabinet places. Does that ring any bells? We'd better put in an early word, an advance booking, before that Peter fellow gets his oar in, or Thomas. We'd like to sit at your right and left hand in the royal box, Master. And in his extended reply, Jesus outlines two contrasting value systems, two lifestyles. On the one hand, that apparently being adopted by the sons of Zebedee and by countless before and since. And on the other hand, that adopted by the Son of Man, Jesus himself. And that morning the Lord said to his disciples, and so he says to us this morning, you've got to choose. Firstly, you've got to choose between self-seeking and self-sacrifice. A life that frankly is characterized by grasping or getting, or a life that is characterized by, by giving. James and John wanted to grasp the glory being next to Jesus. They grasped or coveted the limelight, the honor, the prestige, the status, the fame and recognition, the high road. Whereas Jesus was offering, and still does, the apparently lower road, the road of sacrifice, the road of the cross. And he expresses this so memorably in the final verse of our reading, verse 45. For even the Son of Man, that is, even the most exalted human, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A choice between self-seeking and self-sacrifice, between getting or giving. Which is it? Secondly, Jesus said that it's a choice between power and service, heady power or humble service. Put yourselves in the picture of the story. James and John had asked to sit next to Jesus. What do you imagine they imagined sitting on? What do you think? I don't think it was beanbags. Nor was it one of the local synagogue's stacking chairs. No, weren't they dreaming of a brand new throne apiece? Top of the range throne from Capernaum DFS. Because they didn't only want prestige, they wanted power. They wanted to dominate. They wanted to boss around the other ten. Because, you see, in a sense, that's what they'd been used to in earlier times. We know from the Gospels that these two came from a well-off home with servants. So they were accustomed to having clout, exercising authority, getting their own way. And they brought that mental baggage with them to their pilgrimage with Jesus. Incidentally, every Christian, every follower of Jesus, every one of us here, if we are a Christian, 
we also actually bring to our pilgrimage mental baggage, all of us, from our upbringing, our job, background, and experience. And part of our discipleship may be to have that baggage removed and refined and taken away. Just think about that. The world craves power, doesn't it? We see it all around, in politics, in business, in sport, in the media, in the voluntary sector, the WI, the local operatic society, and I'm afraid we also see it sometimes in the church. People jostling for influence with very mixed motives. I wonder if you know the true story of the conductor of a great symphony orchestra who was once asked which was the most difficult instrument to play. What would your answer be to that? He said, oh, it's the second violin. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second fiddle with enthusiasm, that is a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. Jesus put it this way, verse 42, you know that the rulers of the nations lord it over their people. That's their customary style. And then he said, not so with you. In other words, you, my followers, are to be starkly different. And he continues, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So in the kingdom of God, true greatness does not come by exercising power so much as by offering humble service. The kind of service exemplified over 70 years by our late queen and exemplified over 50 years by our dear friend, Nigel, whose golden jubilee of ordination we celebrate today. And just as Elizabeth had her Philip, without whom she could not have reigned as she did, so Nigel has had, and still has, his Delia as a wonderful support. Dear friends, honestly, Miriam and I, long-standing friends of the Bennets, we cannot think of any couple who more obviously than they just walk the talk and do faithful service without fuss or craving for recognition. Thank you, both of you. But to return to our story, interesting, isn't it? Do get this right. Jesus is not saying that it's all wrong to get to the top. In fact, God wants Christians at the top to be an influence where it counts. But he does mean that at the top or halfway up or wherever we are on the greasy pole, the Christian will not throw their weight around, lord it over others, but rather use whatever power they have to serve others. How Jesus completely turns upside down the values of the world's hierarchies and would that those in power around the world would just listen to him all this reminds me of an incident at one of the churches where I was vicar 
my wife Miriam and I turned up for the church's monthly midweek evening of prayer, which I would be leading. But when we arrived, there was no one there to serve up the pre-meeting mandatory cup of tea or coffee. So we went behind the counter and began to pour. At which point, a well-known member of the congregation said, Oh, have you been demoted? Absolutely not in Jesus' scheme of things. The choice between self-seeking and self-sacrifice. Secondly, the choice between power and service. And thirdly, according to Jesus, the choice between security and possible suffering. There will be almost certainly some kind of cost to following Jesus. And Jesus emphasizes this in a slightly cryptic exchange with James and John at the beginning of the interview. Following their self-centered requests, Jesus asks them, can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Oh, yes, they answered. But of course, they hadn't got a clue what Jesus was talking about. Cup? Well, they probably thought Jesus meant banquets, feasts, all part of the glory package. And by baptism, well, that must mean the luxurious pre-dinner baths, the washings that the Herod family were known to enjoy. Jesus doesn't contradict them. You will indeed share my cup and baptism, he says. But in his mind's eye, Jesus is not seeing Prosecco and saunas. He's seeing the cup of suffering that he, Jesus, will drink to the dregs at his forthcoming passion and the baptism of fire that will shortly consume him. And if we fast forward a year or two beyond that, beyond the first Easter to the years of the early church, what do we find? Well, it's so encouraging in a way because we find this very same James beheaded by Herod for his faith in Christ. And we find this very same John punished for his faith by exile on a scruffy Greek island. So evidently, and be encouraged by this, despite their faux pas earlier on in this disastrous incident, our story, the two brothers did later have their mindset miraculously transformed by the Holy Spirit. And that's so encouraging. Security, staying in our comfort zone, or possible suffering. And Nigel and Delia have had their fair share of suffering, fire, and trauma. It's an authentic mark of the course. Just now, we gave a candle to Louis. Lovely visual aid, isn't it? Think for a moment of the candle. Think of yourself as Jesus' candle, called to shine for him. Yeah, a wax lighthouse, if you like. How does a candle shine or give light? There's only one way, by the giving of its life, as all the time it's burning down. It can't give light and warmth to others any other way than by burning down. And in the right sense, we pray for Louis and his two elder brothers that their life may be characterized by the right sort of burning down 
in service for Jesus Christ. Which brings us finally once more to the climax of Jesus' remarks. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Jesus the candle had to burn right down. But as I quoted him just down, just now, I left out the last two words. Did you notice? The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And with those last two words, for many, Jesus highlights another crucial difference between his value system and that of James and John at this point in the story. Those two only saw the small picture, the narrow frame, themselves. But Jesus goes for the bigger picture, the broader canvas, the many. For he saw the thousands, the hundreds of millions, he saw you and me, who would benefit eventually from his suffering servanthood, his cruel death on the cross. And that vision motivated him to the end. So God grant to you and me, and to Louis and his brothers, and the whole family, the bigger picture, by which we believe and trust that enduring, costly, faithful, humble service is like the sowing of seeds, that can reap a harvest unimaginable in scale and out of all proportion to the degree of input. That was certainly eventually true for John, the son of Zebedee. John, the writer of five New Testament books, including the book of Revelation. Will our life produce a harvest from seeds like that? Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Forgive us, dear Lord, when as individuals and as a church we've perhaps coveted the wrong sort of prestige, power, success, recognition, glory, status. Please forgive us and ingrain deeply into our very bloodstream these values of Jesus for his praise and glory.